Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, A Race Capital, the Harlem Renaissance. 26 novels, 10 volumes of poetry, five Broadway plays, countless essays and short stories, three performed ballets and concerti, and a considerable output of canvas and sculpture. This is how historian David Levering Lewis has summed up the output of the extraordinary period of artistic flowering known as the Harlem Renaissance. Lewis gives us 1917 to 1935 as the years during which it took place. This is certainly a rough and debatable estimate, but serves to make clear that it was mainly a phenomenon of the 1920s, and within that time, as we'll see, from 1925 to 1926, above all. If that is the what and the when, then the where would seem to be pretty obvious, the black neighborhood of Harlem in New York City. It should be noted, however, that the phrase Harlem Renaissance came to be used only much later. This isn't as you might suspect, because renaissances are only ever named as such after the fact. Talk of a renaissance was indeed in the air in the 1920s and 30s. They spoke, though, of a Negro Renaissance, or sometimes a new Negro Renaissance. Later scholars have also pointed out that the cultural currents of the time were not restricted to New York City, much less that one part of the island of Manhattan that is Harlem. Nevertheless, New York City, and Harlem in particular, were indeed the epicenter of the movement, insofar as it can be called one. So that's the what, the when, and the where. What about why? Not why did the Harlem Renaissance happen, but why is it relevant to a history of philosophy? The answer may seem obvious. An artistic outpouring of this magnitude and historical significance is surely going to be relevant, if only because art so often exemplifies, expresses, and inspires philosophical concerns. But we're not going to provide in-depth examination of artistic works in this episode. We'll mostly be concerned with bigger picture questions. What counts as artistic flourishing anyway? And how does such flourishing relate to social progress? These were questions that the great philosophical minds of the time asked and sought to answer, rendering the Harlem Renaissance an epoch-making event in the development of Africana philosophy. We have emphasized in recent episodes that the opening decades of the 20th century were full of intellectual activity, including the Du Bois-Washington debate, one of the most significant intellectual conflicts in all of Africana history. But when it came to what you might call fine art, it had been a quieter time. As we said, Lewis counts 36 novels and books of poetry by Black Americans over the course of the Renaissance. By contrast, he can think of none that appeared in the years between 1912 and 1922. 1912 saw the appearance, before this fallow period, of the autobiography of an ex-colored man, anonymously published by James Weldon Johnson. Born in 1871 to a Bahamian mother and American father in Jacksonville, Florida, Johnson studied law and became a diplomat during Theodore Roosevelt's administration. Before his diplomatic posts, he had already contributed what must be counted his most lasting legacy through a collaboration with his brother, John Rosamond Johnson. James wrote the lyrics and John composed the music for Lift Every Voice and Sing, a song they created for a celebration of Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Within a decade of its composition, in 1900, it was already known as the Negro National Anthem. 
To this day, it's commonly sung as an anthem on various occasions in the United States and Canada. Johnson wrote the autobiography of an ex-colored man, which deals with such topics as lynching and the phenomenon of passing for white during his time as a diplomat. In 1916, he joined the NAACP, and in 1920, he became the first black person to lead the organization as its executive secretary. He held this position from 1920 to 1930, which means that he served in this important role for most of the time of the Renaissance. He continued his literary pursuits even as he carried on this career in activism. Perhaps his greatest contribution during the Renaissance was God's Trombones, a 1927 book of poetry intended to capture the rhetorical power of sermons by black preachers. Actually, when Lewis cites 1922 as the next year after 1912 in which a significant book of fiction or verse was published, he is wrongfully overlooking Johnson's first collection of his poetry, entitled Fifty Years and Other Poems, which was published in 1917. What he is not overlooking is a poem from 1919 that is often seen as the first great work of the Renaissance. This is If We Must Die by Claude McKay, who first came to the United States from Jamaica in 1912 and began studying at Tuskegee before eventually ending up in New York City. He published If We Must Die in The Liberator, a monthly socialist magazine that he co-edited and then included it in a collection of his poetry, Harlem Shadows. And it's this book that Lewis has in mind as breaking the black silence of 10 years. It was also anthologized in the same year by none other than James Weldon Johnson in his first-of-a-kind compilation of great black verse, The Book of American Negro Poetry. If We Must Die was written in response to the Red Summer. This was the name given to the summer of 1919 on account of violent race riots that erupted in a number of cities and towns across the U.S., most famously in Chicago. Many black people died at the hands of white mobs that summer and stretching into the fall, but there were some white deaths too as black people fought back. McKay's poetic response encourages such resistance, announcing a new spirit of militancy in the face of white terror. Here is the poem in its entirety. If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and penned in an inglorious spot while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us, though dead. O oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe. Though far outnumbered, let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? Like men will face the murderous cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. In its lyrical audacity, this poem exemplifies the spirit of the so-called New Negro, a phrase that came to officially symbolize the Renaissance once the professional philosopher Alain Locke edited a book entitled just that, The New Negro, in 1925. But this event did not come out of nowhere, after another three-year pause in the action, several landmark publications of the early 1920s added sparks to the growing blaze of creativity. These included Gene Toomer's 1923 book, Cain, a modernist masterpiece made up of short fiction and poetry. Significantly, the first novel of the Renaissance, 
not counting Kane, given its defiance of genre, was by a woman writer, Jessie Redmond Fawcett. She served as literary editor for the NAACP's magazine, The Crisis, under the general editorship of Du Bois. In 1924, she published There is Confusion, which is remarkable for featuring middle-class Black characters at a time when the Black middle class was little recognized by the American popular imagination. In light of this growing body of work, two magazines associated with civil rights organizations, the NAACP's Crisis and the National Urban League's magazine Opportunity, announced contests for literary prizes. Charles S. Johnson, editor of Opportunity, has been credited with greatly stimulating and crystallizing the Renaissance with the magazine's first awards dinner in May of 1925. Award winners included some of the biggest names of the Renaissance, such as Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, and County Cullen. Before that, however, in March of 1925, came a special issue of the magazine Survey Graphic, titled Harlem, Mecca of the New Negro, guest edited by Alan Locke. This formed the basis for the book, The New Negro, which was published later that year. We will look more broadly at the life and thought of Locke in the next episode. What matters for now is what Locke had to say about there being such a thing as a new Negro, about the importance of Harlem, and what all this had to do with art and social progress. So beyond what, when, where, and why, we now have another question to add to our list, who? Who, that is, was the new Negro, as opposed to someone else, called the old Negro? For Locke, this was, among other things, a contrast between more and less real beings. He said that the old Negro had long become more of a myth than a man. Locke describes this figure as a creation of moral debate, someone to be kept down or helped up. In this way, the old Negro might be seen from different angles within a political conflict, but each angle revealed only a constructed image to fight over, not an active force in the conflict. Nor was the old Negro purely the product of white imaginations. There was black complicity in his creation because African Americans had been led by a lack of independence to engage in a sort of protective social mimicry, a critical reference that recalls ideas we've seen before, like William Ferris's contrast between imitative and reflective beings. The old Negro can therefore be defined as a passive reflection generated by a situation of dependence. The new Negro, by contrast, is not so much a completely new being as a being newly seen, someone no longer obscured by the projections of others. To be new in this sense is to be a recognizable subject rather than an object, an agent rather than something acted upon. Key to this transformation for Locke is the historical process that has come to be known as the Great Migration, the arrival in northern cities of Black migrants from the rural South in massive numbers. The process had gotten underway during the 1910s, and its effects were very clearly noticeable by 1925. Locke does not just remark upon this process, he actively glorifies it. The wash and rush of this human tide on the beach line of the northern city centers is to be explained primarily in terms of a new vision of opportunity, of social and economic freedom, of a spirit to seize, even in the face of an extortionate and heavy toll, a chance for the improvement of conditions. Locke thus sees this geographical shift as the concrete embodiment of the disappearance of the old Negro, the shift from passive object to active subject. 
This brings us back to the where and the when. It was in large part the Great Migration that put Harlem in the Harlem Renaissance and made it happen in the 1920s. But of course, migrants from the South came to many northern cities, not only New York. Another significant source of demographic change in New York in particular was the arrival of people from the Caribbean, something we've already seen through the stories of figures such as Hubert Harrison, Marcus Garvey, and indeed the aforementioned Claude McKay. Locke writes, Here in Manhattan is not merely the largest Negro community in the world, but the first concentration in history of so many diverse elements of Negro life. It has attracted the African, the West Indian, the Negro American, has brought together the Negro of the North and the Negro of the South, the man from the city and the man from the town and village, the peasant, the student, the businessman, the professional man, artist, poet, musician, adventurer, and worker, preacher and criminal, exploiter and social outcast. Locke acknowledges that this cosmopolitan mix results from segregation. It was, after all, a concentration brought about by the fact that Black New Yorkers could not simply live anywhere they wanted. Nevertheless, it was a concentration rich with possibilities. Locke put it this way, In Harlem, Negro life is seizing upon its first chances for group expression and self-determination. It is, or promises at least to be, a race capital. With this grand ideal, Locke contextualizes the poetry and prose collected in the book he edited under the title of The New Negro. He describes the hope that a rehabilitation in world esteem will develop out of the revaluation by white and black alike of the Negro in terms of his artistic endowments and cultural contributions, past and prospective. The contributions of the past to the development of American culture in the South are worthy of recognition, but the new situation brings a fresh opportunity to actively reshape the country. As Locke puts it, using the notion of a special gift introduced by figures like Du Bois, a second crop of the Negro's gifts promises still more largely. He now becomes a conscious contributor and lays aside the status of a beneficiary and ward for that of a collaborator and participant in American civilization. Let us move on now to 1926. There was a second awards dinner organized under the aegis of the magazine Opportunity. Langston Hughes, arguably the greatest star of the Harlem Renaissance, published his first book of poetry, The Weary Blues. It features many of his most famous poems, including The Negro Speaks of Rivers, which is here dedicated to Du Bois. Even more significant for our purposes is an essay by Hughes titled The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain, published in the weekly political magazine, The Nation. It appeared in the June 23rd issue, one week after The Nation published a very striking essay by George Schuyler called The Negro Art Hokum. Without mentioning Schuyler by name, Hughes clearly responds to and rejects what he has to say. As a result, these two essays constitute what might be the most fascinating philosophical debate of the Harlem Renaissance, touching on fundamental issues of racial identity class status and, as with Locke's introduction to the new Negro, the question of art's purpose. Schuyler's piece denied that there was a renaissance in black art going on in Harlem or anywhere else in the United States. This is not because he held recent work by black artists in low regard, but because he thought the category of black art made no sense in the context of the United States. Negro art there has been, is, and will be among the numerous black nations of Africa, wrote Schuyler, 
But to suggest the possibility of any such development among the 10 million colored people in this republic is self-evident foolishness. Any art arising from these people could only logically be classified, according to Schuyler, as American art. His point went beyond the truism that such art is American because the artists come from America. As he put it most bluntly, the Afro-American is merely a lamp-blacked Anglo-Saxon. In other words, there is no separate black art that can come out of the American experience because the black American is culturally American. He writes, as for the literature, painting, and sculpture of Afro-Americans, such as there is, it is identical in kind with the literature, painting, and sculpture of white Americans. That is, it shows more or less evidence of European influence. The dean of the Afro-American literati is W.E.B. Du Bois, a product of Harvard and German universities. The foremost Afro-American sculptor is Meta Warwick Fuller, a graduate of leading American art schools and a former student of Rodin, while the most noted Afro-American painter, Henry Asawa Tanner, is dean of American painters in Paris and has been decorated by the French government. One might naturally ask, what about music? After all, it's hard to imagine a more distinctive cultural form than African-American music, and that was already true in the 1920s. So how could Schuyler dare to pretend that black music in America is no different from the music made by white Americans? His reply? True, from dark-skinned sources have come those slave songs based on Protestant hymns and biblical texts known as the spirituals, work songs and secular songs of sorrow and tough luck known as the blues, that outgrowth of ragtime known as jazz, in the development of which whites have assisted, and the Charleston, an eccentric dance invented by the gamins around the public marketplace in Charleston, South Carolina. No one can or does deny this, but these are the contributions of a caste in a certain section of the country. They are foreign to Northern Negroes, West Indian Negroes, and African Negroes. Schuyler thus rejects the category of black art, even in the case of black music, because it erases the cultural difference between different peoples who all happen to be black. This is a kind of aesthetic refusal of the ideology being touted at this very period by Marcus Garvey and his followers, which insisted upon the unity of all people of African heritage. The very idea that there could be a renaissance in black art, in Schuyler's view, had its roots in nothing other than good old-fashioned racism. This nonsense is probably the last stand of the old myth palmed off by Negrophobists for all these many years, that there are fundamental, eternal, and inescapable differences between white and black Americans. Schuyler deems it unsurprising that some black Americans will go along with this lie. Implicitly, he suggests that black difference is nothing but a marketing ploy used by some black artists. Going along with the lie might help them attract an audience, since the idea that black people produce unique art is tempting to many Americans, but Schuyler concludes, it must be rejected with a loud guffaw by intelligent people. Hughes's take on these issues is diametrically opposed to Schuyler's. Indeed, if geometry allowed it, his take would be even more than diametrically opposed. Schuyler's line of argument may have seemed shocking and disturbing to you, but the same arguably goes for the memorable opening paragraph of Hughes's essay. He recounts the experience of a conversation with someone he identifies as one of the most promising of the young Negro poets. This poet said to him, I want to be a poet, not a Negro poet. Hughes translates this for us as, I want to write like a white poet, then says that this subconsciously means, I would like to be a white poet, 
and that the ultimate meaning behind it is, I would like to be white. Given this diagnosis, Hughes's reaction was to doubt whether this poet would ever achieve greatness, because, as he puts it, no great poet has ever been afraid of being himself. It seems like Hughes is making quite a leap here, even before you find out that, as scholars have established, Hughes is talking about a conversation with County Cullen, widely celebrated as a great poet of the Harlem Renaissance. But let's put aside for now the question of whether Cullen was here being treated fairly and get clearer on Hughes's point. As we said, the title of the essay is The Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain. The mountain in question is precisely this urge to be white, or as he also puts it, the desire to pour racial individuality into the mold of American standardization and to be as little Negro and as much American as possible. This mountain, according to Hughes, stands in the way of great black art. He perceives a strong class dimension to this phenomenon, describing the black middle class as highly susceptible to it. He describes a middle class upbringing complete with reading white newspapers and magazines, a mother warning her children not to be like N-words when they're bad, a father who has married the lightest woman he could find, and various other forms of socialization, all leading to a common result. The word white comes to be unconsciously a symbol of all virtues. It holds for the children beauty, morality, and money. By contrast, Hughes glorifies the ways of those he calls the low-down folks, the so-called common element. From this class, he claims, an artist can furnish a wealth of colorful, distinctive material, because these people have not been forced into this standardizing American mold. When he turns to describing his own method as a poet, he makes clear his dedication to authentically capturing Black uniqueness. Most of my own poems are racial in theme and treatment, derived from the life I know. In many of them, I try to grasp and hold some of the meanings and rhythms of jazz. In contrast with Schuyler's attempt to regionalize and provincialize jazz, along with other apparently distinctive forms of African-American music, Hughes locates within it a kind of key to a Black inner world. Jazz, to me, is one of the inherent expressions of Negro life in America, the eternal tom-tom beating in the Negro soul, the tom-tom of revolt against weariness in a white world, a world of subway trains and work, 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 the tom-tom of joy and laughter and pain swallowed in a smile. He proclaims it a duty of the rising generation of Black artists to seek to change the whisper of, I want to be white, into a confident, why should I want to be white? I am a Negro and beautiful. Schuyler and Hughes thus offer two strongly opposed perspectives, not just on the relation between identity and art, but on what it means to resist racism. Both see racism as underlying the position they reject. For Schuyler, perception of Black uniqueness is an effect of racism, while Hughes suggests that racism's greatest power is its ability to push Black people to forsake the grand heritage of their uniqueness. One way to think through this debate would be to turn now to the poetry of the man who so disappointed Hughes with his desire not to be locked into a black box, County Cullen. You might think he would be a spokesman for Schuyler's point of view, given his refusal to describe himself as a Negro poet, yet his enduring classics are explorations of black identity. The poem Heritage, for example, with its refrain, What is Africa to me, offers a complicated picture of modern alienation but not one that can be considered universal, as it is the meaning and continuing influence of specifically African heritage that is at issue. 
It is furthermore ironic that Cullen serves Hughes as the symbol of aspiring towards raceless poetry, given that one of his most oft-quoted lines is the closing line of Yet Do I Marvel, an interrogation of the mind of God, that ends with Cullen musing, Yet do I marvel at this curious thing, to make a poet black and bid him sing. Less than a week after Hughes' essay was published, 1926 saw yet another moment of philosophical significance. At an NAACP conference in Chicago, during a night in which the organization honored the historian Carter G. Woodson, Du Bois himself laid out his thoughts on the meaning and value of art in the context of the Renaissance. His address, entitled Criteria of Negro Art, is as essential to appreciating the intellectual dimensions of the Renaissance as the statements by Locke and Hughes, but so as not to stretch our discussion of the years 1925 and 26 out in this episode for so long that it begins to feel two years long in itself, we will save discussion of Du Bois's thoughts for future episodes. As for the Renaissance, it lasted for well over two years. It would ultimately come to an end in the 1930s in the context of the Great Depression. Some scholars, including Lewis, take the Harlem riot of 1935 as the end point. Unlike the race riots of 1919, the Harlem riot was arguably the first instance of what would become a major feature of the latter half of the 20th century. It was not a case of white mobs attacking a black district, but of black frustration bubbling over in response to racism, with property damage and struggles with police coming in the wake of a reported beating of a black shoplifter by store employees. The riot stands out as a moment when Harlem once again began to symbolize something new, but not pleasantly new. Not the hope and artistic genius described by Locke, but the increasing poverty, isolation, and suffering of northern black ghettos. The name of Alain Locke has already been key throughout this episode, but there is much more to say about him. Though he is perhaps most famous as prophet and promoter of the Harlem Renaissance, he was, in his own right, one of the great minds in this period of American academic philosophy, especially thanks to the aesthetic theory which he applied in many contexts, ranging from scholarly journal articles to theater reviews. That's who we'll be covering next time, and why you should make sure to listen. As for where, of course our discussion of Locke will be right here, on the history of Africana philosophy.